We'll be uh, continuing where we left off yesterday, but let's just kind of have some words of introduction. Um, so uh, my, um, uh, my family is growing, and so the majority, two-thirds of my family are 18 and above, and then the lower half is 15, 11, and 6. So it's a big paradigm shift for us. Um, my sons have strong opinions. They get that from their mother, of course. And um, uh, they, uh, they're very respectful. They love the Lord. They, they want to do the right thing. And those are all blessings, and we, we count them as such. But I'll, I'll never forget um, how the Lord taught me the value of, um, not really the value only, but the necessity of making sure that our marriage was strong. My wife and I were in the kitchen, and we were uh, uh, saying goodbye. And um, I've had some events in my medical career that really shocked me, and, and um, I make it a point almost fanatically to say goodbye to each person in the house. Um, I, uh, trauma once happened, and the girl, the young lady, lost her father, and, and she just wept on my shoulder and told me, told me how her dad never said goodbye that morning. And that, that so affected me that I thought I'll never leave the house without saying goodbye. And so, uh, so I was saying goodbye, and I was hugging my wife and kissing her. And, and I felt um, this arm wrapped around my left leg and her right leg. And I looked down, and there's this, this face. He's, you know, like this, just beaming up. And, and he is just as grinning. He's got one arm here and one arm there like we're tree trunks. And he is shaking us like this. And he's just as happy as he could be. And he, in no words, was saying the following things. Thank you for loving each other. The stability that comes to a child's life is so um, underestimated by the stability of the marriage. And what we think is that the stability in a marriage is because we agree to get along. I would submit to you that the stability of a marriage is not just because you agree to get along, but you agree before the God of the universe that you personally will die to yourself as unto the Lord in your marriage. If there's anything less than the way of the disciple in your marriage, your marriage has the roots of compromise. When he says... He who comes after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And without that, you cannot be my disciple. That applies to the marital setting. If any place in the universe it should apply, it applies to the marital setting. And if we can get that in our hearts, I think we'll go a long way to seeing the marriages that God would truly, truly be honored with. Now, what we did yesterday, last night... Um, we, we spoke about uh, the original foundation. And we went back to Genesis chapter 2 and also chapter 1. We looked at the idea of how there was co-regency and responsibility over the creation of God. We looked at how God had made Adam uh, or made all of the creation and everything was good except we, he came to this point with the uh, noting the isolation of man and he said, you know, that's not good. Now, if you're the, the creator of all things and you say something like, well, this is not what I think it should be, then pretty much you know what you're doing, Right. And so, therefore, he makes another human being out of, the, out of the flesh of that first human being, which is unlike any other created uh, entity upon the planet. And that immediately galvanizes that relationship above all others. So there's unique association, there's unique loyalty, there's unique identity, and finally, there's a unique ceremony where God himself presides over the first wedding, and he says the most, most uh, uh, profound of words, especially since there was no fathers or mothers at this point in the timeline of history. And, and he says, this call, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And we looked in detail about what it means to leave, what it means to cleave, and what it means to be before each other in a transparent fashion, uh, and, and, and there be harmony and, and mutual um, adoration. But that all sounded so good, and we look at our lives today, and we, we read statistics, and we have families that have uh, devastated hearts and uh, marriages, and, and we go, well, what happened to all this beauty? 
Well, that's the fall. And what we did is we looked into the fall in chapter 3, and I was trying to pull out the very tentacles, the roots, that actually feed into some of the problems we see today. Now, one of the big ones that we looked at last night was the introduction of distrust, right? Because when you introduce distrust, you really are saying that I don't love you, right? What does it say in the 1 Corinthians 13? Love believes, the same word, pistua, believes all things, right? So trust and love are really inherently interwoven. And so for her to be, or for Satan to be lying about God's character, he's also saying you not only can't trust him, you can't believe him, you can't love him. So just walk away right now. Trust me on this one. And so she begins to sort of fall subtly into this motif of distrusting God. And then he spills the big line, oh, God, you won't surely die. You just need to understand the correct interpretation of the word die. It means that you, you, you're just going to be like God. And he doesn't like that. that. I should know. Why am I here? Right? That whole you know, unspoken thing. That's a great way. That's what we do in politics. We don't tell you the lie because it would be too obvious. We just lead you up to it and let you think it out. And then you come up to your own conclusion of the lie. It's very diabolical, very sinister. And that's exactly what happens in marriages today. Uh, I'm amazed when, when uh, uh, couples, especially unsaved couples, they'll ask me questions and they'll say, uh, it's as if they, they try to hide from each other their, their secret lifestyles. And you know it's possible to do that in Christian marriages too. Where do you think you get that? Uh, let me just tell you where it comes from. Genesis chapter 3. That's where it comes from. Well, it never works out, as you and I both know. Uh, Adam was right there. He should have intervened. It says I, he, she gave to her husband who was with her as if he was standing right there just silently approving everything that happened. And then what happened next is, you know, he was supposed to be leadership, no leadership there. And God steps in, calls him to an account. And immediately, uh, uh, remember, immediately they lost their dignity. Uh, there was this denial. There was this deferral. There was this blame or de-blame and de-curse, right? Remember all that? And we looked at the curse. And we looked at some of those things about the blaming and the cursing and just how that shows up in our, in our marital rooms today. You'll see the tentacles of it. It surfaces. And those are not meant to, to make us feel this big in our Christianity. They're to remind us that there's a nature of sin that is a foot uh, rendered, harm, rendered powerless at the cross, but nonetheless this, uh, the nature of sin wants to herald its influence. But there's no influence to be obeyed anymore. Yeah, that's the problem. So what happens is we get into this curse thing and, and we focused on your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's as if God was saying, so Eve, you're supposed to be in the place of loving authority, but you wanted, uh, the, are supposed to be in the place of loving surrender, but you wanted the, the authority. I'm going to have your desire of wanting the authority stay, but I'm going to keep you in this place of willing surrender and Adam, you should have provided leadership, and yet you didn't. You should have been loving authority. You didn't. So I'm going to have you stay in that place, but you'll continue this passive-like approach. And I can't say that's for all men, just generalities. And I see that as, as sort of like a setup for frustration. And many, many marriages have come, and they would say, you know, my husband just doesn't go, so I've got to do it, you know. And, uh, and we get in this sort of tension that occurs. As many of you ladies will know, men, we are like this. If you want to do it, go ahead. We'll watch. Right? That's, that's not a, a statement of, of pride. That's a statement of confession. That's wrong. We, you know, we're here to do that. And so much so this affected us in our child training that we would actually, uh, when we would bring a child, one of our young ones to meeting and, you know, introducing them to how to be quiet in meeting, that's a challenge, isn't it? Would you agree? And there comes a point where that little beautiful body is now all of a sudden able to take their head and go, whack, I'm so glad you got soft chairs here. And, uh, and, and when they start to squirm and they're too much for mom's lap, in our marriage, in order for us to apply this principle, I would take the child out. And I missed a few meetings doing that but I missed a whole lot less meetings than my wife would have missed, right? Because we just felt there was a necessity that I needed to, to step up to the plate and show that child there is an authority that will not move. 
that will be the backstop of your life. And I know you say, oh, Steve, they're just one years old. Ah, yeah, trust me. I'm telling you, you start it when they're young, it has great effect when they're old, right? It does. It really does. How can the football player, 22 years of age on national TV, go, hi, mom? You know, how does he do that? There's a respect that happens, right? So anyway, back to where we were. So going back to uh, the thing was this, this whole idea of this reversal of roles and then the inherent frustration because you're here in this position, but you want that and vice versa, and, and it becomes, it becomes a, a, almost a, a vicious cycle. It's, it's a curse. Now, the, th- the thing about, and we ended last night in talking about how God reverses the curse. And in Genesis, it was not so much of the fig leaves that did any reversal. That was really uh, ineffective. It was God taking the life of animals to cover. And I don't think it was one animal. I think it was several animals where God had to, to take and cover their exposed sin or their exposure from sin. And that was a picture is that God would, would one day do that and cover us in the blood of Christ, as it were, underneath the threshold of the, of the doorway of our soul with the blood on the lintel and the, and, and the doorpost and the death angel passes over us. Beautiful pictures just scattered everywhere in the Bible about this one singular redemptive truth. And so, uh, uh, but what we realized is that Christ became a curse for us. Do you remember that? That's in Galatians, that Christ is a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. That's the verse there. And what he's saying is this curse that is not only from the law, that curse it if you don't do the things written in the law, the handwriting of doc, the document of handwriting of things against us. That's one level of curse. But there's a general curse, a curse against creation, a curse where, where the roles were switched and now frustrated in nature. We have, this, we have that kind of curse in Genesis chapter 3. Christ took that curse too. That's why all of creation stands around waiting for that day when the Lord Jesus will come back as if the rocks are just waiting to yell out, Christ is victorious, right? All the animals are yelling out, Christ is king, that kind of idea. And, and, and Christ, our Savior, reverses that curse. And you ask, how can that be? How can we actually have all of this nature that drives us to this tension and this denial and this deferral and this blaming one? How can we reverse that? It's so ingrained. It's so, it's so dominating. That's the beauty. And I've got to admit, it's quite brilliant. What he did is when he died on the cross, he not only paid for our sins, he actually became... And this confounds me. It says he became sin for us. What does that mean? I think that's a subtle referral, not the only referral, but the subtle referral to the nature of sin being crucified with him. He's made sin. You see, he saved us from the penalty, but he also saved us from the power, or we can say domination of sin. And how does he do that? Well, there's only one way you end somebody's reign of terror, they have to die. So, the old nature dies with Christ. Now, if that is the dead state, then how do you actually live? Because it's dead now. There's nothing left. God says, that's, that's the beauty part. I'm going to now give you my new nature. And not only are you going to have my nature, you're going to have the activity of God in life living through you. It's called my spirit. And what, what I'm going to have happen is I'm going to actually end the curse by getting rid of, by paying the penalty and ending that regime. We're going to put them to death. They can't arise again. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually inhabit you in such a way so that all my affections and all my passions and all my thinking bleeds out through every pore of your spiritual being. So that if God was on the planet in Jesus Christ, for example, and he stopped to touch a leper's skin, you would too, because that's my life living out through you. Now, I'm not going to alter your personality and make you some sort of weirdo trans-like state. I'm going to live within the dimension of who I made you and the kind of snowflake you are. But make no mistake, the life of God will express its vitality and its imagery right in you daily, consistently, 24-7. That's Christ in you. And the curse will be reversed. 
Now you've got to admit, who would have thought of that? I would have never thought of that. I would have had some stupid idea about rewiring the neurons. And the Lord says, ah, it's not going to work. It's got to be a spiritual thing. That's why I believe in the tripartite to make up a man. It's got to be spiritual. God in spirit. And he says that. He's the spirit of God dwells in you. There's a bunch of prepositions in the, in the Greek New Testament, and, and they all describe spatial orientation, right? And so if you have a box, and this is by uh, the work of, um, in the Newberry's Bible, in the Inner Testament section, and it has some nice, uh, some nice uh, pages there that talk about prepositions in the original language, and, uh, and it has this cube, and, and so prepositions describe relationships, and so you can, be, you can say, well, I'm near the box. In our language, that would mean you're probably within um, a short distance of the box, but you're not actually on the inside, but you're close in proximity. Well, there's one word in the Greek, it's called epsilon nu, uh, E-N, and, and, it, and it's the word in, and it means in the very center, not on the perimeter, not on the, on the, uh, on the, not on the perimeter, not on just on the outside, but in the very center of what could be the centermost part of, a, of that particular object. And that's what he's saying. I'm going to live in the very center of you. Not on the outside as an influence or a counselor whispering in your ear. Not as somebody who is uh, a, a consultant when you need help. I'm going to be actually resident in the internal core of all that can be known as the soul and the spirit. So that when I breathe, it would be your breath. When I inhale, it would be you inhaling. When I exhale, it would be you exhaling. Everything that is about me will be in you. That's a beauty. That's the beauty of this whole idea. Now, it's very, it's very uh, uh, talked about in the New Testament, and I, I think we should move on. Now, Back to today's lesson, uh, Genesis chapter 24 and 25, or Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Let's go back and read that. I know that what I opened with this morning is probably redundant for you and probably things that you've heard many times, but there is never a more important place for their application than in the marital setting, Right? Make no mistake, marriage is the anvil where Christianity gets pounded out. But I'd rather not us get beat up over it either, right? So here's what the Lord says. He was his first marriage, first message to the couple. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I read that in English in approximately 10 seconds or less. In the Hebrew, it, probably, it would take, it's equally short. Now, that verse shows up three times in the New Testament, four times total in the Scriptures. That's a pretty big, uh, a pretty big usage of Old Testament Scripture in the New Testament, considering that it takes up a very small, less than point zero 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 percent of the entire Old Testament, right? And it shows up three times in the New. So it means that we've got to pay attention to it. Now, the very first place that it shows up in the New Testament chronologically is Matthew chapter 19. I want you to turn to that. Because I'm going to use this to dovetail or to begin to launch ourselves into how the curse can be reversed. Because this is the original message. The thread is then woven into the New Testament. And the Lord Jesus is ministering on this himself. Now, chapter 19, verse 3. Well, let's, let's begin uh, by reading the entire uh, from verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings... They departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. He healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Now, the reason why I read verse 1 is basically you should know that he is in Perea. And it was governed by um, um, uh, the king there. I think it was Philip, if I'm not mistaken. You remember that thing with the wife and the wife swapping? Well, he was in the region where this king was really had jurisdiction. So when the Pharisees come to ask this question, they're really asking the question so he'll incriminate himself against the Roman government. He would be speaking against the Roman government. So they said to him, uh, testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, any, for just any reason? Right? Well, that's kind of a loaded question. It's two questions. First question is, is it lawful to divorce your wife? The second question, can I do it for any reason that I so choose? Right? 
It's very subtle. We do this all the time. And, uh, and so he says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no man separate. That's actually where we get that line of the, of the vows. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses get, command a certificate to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Now, actually, that's a very legitimate question because what the Lord Jesus says sounds incongruous to Moses the prophet. And so they're basically saying to this rabbi, Hey, are you kind of contradicting Moses here? Moses seems to be, in their eyes, bigger than you. And so Moses, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And I'll stop right there. All right, so let's, let's look at this carefully. The very first point I want to make is simply this. It's a matter of permanence, right? What he's saying is, listen, guys, you, 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 you're talking about divorce. I just, I just want you to know, when God originally instituted the officiating merit, uh, message of the first marriage, he said it this way, man shall leave mom and dad, cleave to his wife, and then the Lord Jesus adds this commentary, what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, it's intended to be permanent. Now, in our marriage counseling, we're very strong on this. I don't care where you stand on divorce and remarriage. That's a discussion for your elders, not me. Um, but I think we all can agree that the marriage vows are intended to be permanent, right? And so when we're in a marriage counseling situation, and over the years we've, ha- we've been asked to do a lot of them, and that's just the Lord ask- asking us to step up there. And we kind of didn't know what we were doing, but as over the years this became really prominent that I needed to emphasize this. And I'll sit down and I'll say, listen, right now, you guys are just like goo. You know, you're stuck and you just think, oh, this person. Yeah. But I'm telling you, there's going to be a day in which all those little things of life are going to kind of build up. And you're actually going to get irritated at one another. And if you don't deal with that irritation, then it's going to grow into really a lot of annoyance with one another. And if you don't deal with that, then it's going to get into tension with one another. And if you don't deal with that, it's going to get into to, uh, uh, verbal and nonverbal expressions of that tension. And then it's going to, if that's not dealt with, it's going to lead to the next level of actually uh, of being a bit, a bit bitter towards the other person. And that leads to hatred of one another. And you know what happens? Your marriage falls apart. And when that happens, I want you to listen. And this is what I tell them. I'm kind of in their face on this. I said, you will be tempted to get angry in the heat of the battle, and you'll be tempted to take off your ring and say, I want a divorce. And I'm telling you, all those couples, and they're all syrupy state at that restaurant we're at. Oh, Steve, we would never do that. <laughs> and this is what I say. You ready? Oh, yes, you I'm telling you, that happened. That happened. And so I tell them, don't you ever, ever, either playfully or in serious, say, I want a divorce. I just need, you know, don't ever, don't ever, that's not, that's no fly zone Christianity, okay? It's off limits. And I want, and I tell them, I, I, I'm so sorry, I get passionate about this. I want you to know that if you play around with it, I will hunt you down. I don't really mean that, of course, but what I'm saying is, is that's not the intended path of God. You tell me you want to follow God's path. You make up your minds right now that whatever it is, we will work it out no matter the cost. We will die if necessary. That's what we're talking about. Permanence. Permanence today is a very lost art. I, I didn't come up with this kind of statistic. It's really the sociologists do that. But they, they are commenting on generations, you know. And so you have the baby boomer generations. And although I don't want to admit it, I'm actually at the end of that era. Uh, I don't consider myself a baby boomer. Not really. 
And, uh, and then, you know, you have the next one and then the next one. So I kind of grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, big hair, big shoulder pads kind of stuff, right? But the generation that sort of went, what do they call them, the millennialists. I always wanted a title like the millennialist. That sounds kind of cool, right? But the sociologists of our day today and then the, the generation X and Y, whatever, what are you going to get to the end of the alphabet? Uh, generation A? I don't know. But anyway, you get down there, and, and there's this thought that if it's not working out, let's just leave. All right? Now, that's a cultural mindset. It's one that, that we would have to – it's like it's modern and postmodernism, postmodern. We don't really know what it is until we define it. We go, oh, well, that's it. You know? Well, this – and I'm, I don't want to plague the millennials, but that's what the, the papers were saying. That There's this sort of thing where – if we got this tension and we can't quite figure it out easily, let's just leave and we'll just start over. Well, that's countercultural, a counterculture to the biblical mandate. And if you're going to go against the culture, then what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to decide where the culture ends and the Bible begins. And that's really key. That's why I'm so uh, strong on this in our marriage counseling and actually to our discussion. Um, now, what's, where's the second passage where this comes up? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So we'll want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, please feel free to ask questions or make comments as we go. As, as you're turning there, I, um, I do want to, I, I want to be careful and make comments and my comments about divorce, okay? So I said to you, that we, we are counseling our young people who are getting married to don't play around with those terms, right? Don't mess with them. Don't flirt with them. Don't tease with them. Don't joke with them. Don't use them in anger. Um, but inevitably, the question will come up, okay, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? And, and you may or may not know this, but there are several different camps of thought on this. And, and one of the camps is um, God has instituted marriage pre-fall, and therefore, it's permanent in its injunction. And so if you marry a person, no matter what portion of your life, whether saved or unsaved, God looks at you as married forever because it's permanent. Case closed. If you're divorced, never get remarried. That's the idea. Otherwise, you're in a continuous state of adultery. And there are fine brothers and sisters that believe that and hold to that. Um, another, another camp is um, uh, you can be... Um, uh, marriage is permanent, but in the case of infidelity or, or sexual immorality in the marriage setting where the bond is broken, then divorce can happen. And some would say from there you cannot be remarried or you can be remarried. All right? And so there's this viewpoint and this, middle, this second viewpoint with these two arms to it. And then, of course, there's a real liberal viewpoint, which we don't hold to. Now, most of us in our circles will be on the one over here, no divorce, no remarriage, or divorce, but no remarriage, or divorce and remarriage, right? The way uh, I, I mean, I myself have my own opinion on that, as well as my elders. We have our, our own opinion on that. In your assemblies, that's really something you'll need to take up with your own elders, right? I found that if I start to tell you what I think and why I think it, and it's different than the oversight here that creates too much tension and too much discord in the assembly setting. Uh, and, so, and, I, and so I just want you to know that's where the opinions lie. That's generally what's at stake. All right. I have to tell you the, 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 the last thing. Whatever place you come to through the Spirit of God's instruction to you, just be careful of how you manage your opinions. All right. Just because you think you're right doesn't mean that you can take your right position and club everybody with it. All right. You understand that? How do we handle Calvinism and Arminianism? Right. I mean, there there are guys that say that you know God chose, and I'm never really sure what they mean by that. God chose what? And then we have folks, probably where I'm at, where I'd say, well, God chose us unto something. Right. So kind of the corporate idea. And whatever opinion we have, and there's fine brothers on both sides, both yesteryear and today and tomorrow, who are very godly men, 
We can't take our position and beat you with it. I don't think that's right. I think that borders on a position that God would oppose. Not, and I'm not saying to oppose your opinion, just your posture. And so I want to caution us that we want to approach this with humility. One thing I learned in medicine, the moment I think I have it figured out is about the time I kill somebody. So I am very careful with what I think I know. Right? And that's, that's a life lesson for me. And so I, I, I really caution us it's good to have our positions. And if you look on our website, we have our position. We, have, we write a position paper. If you, if you look, uh, uh, and those are, those are good. But what's not right is to take our position and use it as our calling card of the right to be right. All right? I think humility and, and, and it, uh, I was traveling with um, Brother Bill McDonald one time, one time in my life, Bill McDonald. I had, him, I had him alone for 96 hours. We were on the airplane. We went to Mexico, to El Torian, and I, that's all the Spanish I know. <laughs> and uh, so we were, we were there, and uh, uh, I, I asked him my thousand questions. And he goes, uh, I, I asked him, I said, how do you uh, handle these differences of opinion. This is what he said to me. Well, St- you know, do, you know, do you remember Bill McDonald? He had a crooked eye. Okay. So I'm on the plane. I'm kind of going. <laughs> and he talks very austerely. He goes, well, Steve, I like what H.A. Ironside said. You knew H.A. Ironside? Yes, he was in my home as a boy. Okay, can I touch you? You, know. <laughs> you ever read H. A. Ironside? Good stuff, right? He goes, H. A. Ironside used to meet with people who disagreed with him. And he said, you know, brother, when we get to heaven, one of us will be wrong. And then Bill, he gets a twinkle in his eye when he's going to give you the punchline. He goes, and he said, it will probably be me. I'll be wrong. That's a good attitude, right? Both as elders as well as individuals. All right? Now, don't get me wrong. I got my opinions, and they're strong ones. And if you want to go toe-to-toe, we can, but I'm not sure that's edifying. What is edifying is how I handle my opinion. Right? Okay. That's all I'll say about that. Let's go to Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Whew. I hope that came out right. <laughs> All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 15. Now, I'm going to read this section because of the context, all right? Now, you and I both remember that the ancestral activity in the church of Corinth was at, well, on the fore, uh, front, fore, front burner in chapter 5. This is still talking about some of those ramifications, and he's talking about the general climate of sexual promiscuity in the meeting. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Okay, so I would think we're talking about the collective reference to the body, and he's referring to Christ, so we're all members of his body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? So he's saying, now individually, if you're part of that body, a part of making up his body, do you want to take yourself and join yourself to a prostitute? And of course, Paul's classic, certainly not translated in English vernacular, I don't think so, oh dumb one, okay? It's not in the Greek, but it fits. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Okay, that line is out of the original message, right? That's in Genesis chapter 2. And he says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he's talking about the imagery that's involved. And we talked about this on Thursday night a little bit, that there's a certain pictorial quality, a pictorial nature to physical intimacy, which bespeaks not of just of the beauty of two human beings coming together to produce new life, but really it's reflective of the union that the Lord has with his people. That's what's going on here. So therefore, you let your physical bodies reflect the spiritual reality Thus, order yourselves, your physical bodies, in this manner. Flee sexual immorality. Fleeing is, means, is the idea of sort of uh, uh, you're the fugitive and you're running from it, 
right? That's the idea. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And why is that a big deal? Well, because your body is the temple, the dwelling, the actual housing, the residence of the Spirit of God who is in you. And what do you think the word in is made up of? Epsilon nu, in the very center of you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. So not only are there, there's just not one reason of the residency of the Spirit of God and His vitality living through you. It's, it's actually that He is not just a, a resident like an apartment renter. He is actually owner. And the owner can do what he wants, by the way. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. That's the spiritual side, which are God's. In other words, take your physical activities that you would be able to do with the senses of, your, of stimulation and order them in such a way that God is glorified on the other side of the unseen, intangible realm. That's what he's saying. That's why immorality is such a big deal. Now, How does this refer to our verse in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2? Very simply, he's saying there needs to be faithfulness in the physical union. No unfaithfulness. You see, not because there's just a code we have to live by. This is what you Christians do. But because there's some, some reflection to the union, the pure union that Christ would have with his bride. You reflect that we do that all the time, don't we? We're going to cover some information in a minute that shows how God uses genders to announce his plan. It's the same idea. God is using our physical activities to announce his plan about himself, about he and his bride. He tells us, you behave in a certain way which bespeaks of the doctrine. You you use your physical bodies as a megaphone. And he's, he's, he's doing the same in Corinthians. And you use this physical union of, of faithfulness, one to another, not joining the harlot. You use that to echo my truth. That's why in the book of Ephesians, you'll hear verbiage like this. The church is the herald of the multicolored array of God's wisdom. You know what that means? That means you got this blowhorn to all of the angelic host. And you sometimes we're yelling and it's really loud. And sometimes we're whispering and it's really soft. It's got many colors to it, many descriptions. But in the end, you're the one that's announcing the fantastic ideas and creative uh, re- new creations that God had in mind. And we're doing it not only with our voices. We're doing it with our physical bodies. We're doing it with the places that we take and, and gender roles and head coverings and you name it. God's got all kinds of paints on the palette of heaven. And he's wanting us to use them genuinely, accurately, and fully. Does that make sense? And so one one of the ways that that's actually applied is our physical union. The the, uh, faithfulness of my body to my wife and her body to me. This is not just some code we check off the list. Well, this is what Christians do. How boring is that? No, no, no. This is, this is big stuff. This is reflective of the bigger dynamic. This is what separates us from all other religions because it's our Savior. It's such a cliche, but it is so true. All right. Any questions on that? I hope we put it in perspective. Ephesians, this is the big one. You're waiting for it. Now, we should, what time did we start, Brother Aaron? Was that like? It was about 5 after 10. 5 after 10. So we got till 11. 30 afternoon. Is that? <laughs> Sorry. First yeah. yeah, right, right, right. All right, we've got to left. So let's go through that. This is going to be very interesting. So Ephesians chapter 5. Now, you, you can tell, as I mentioned yesterday, that we're going to spend a lot of time in looking at how the curse is reversible. I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 5, and before we get to the marriage paragraphs of verse 23 through the end of the chapter, it is incredibly valuable to look at verse 18, all right? What does verse 18 say? And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. What's dissipation? Unruliness, right? All right? Which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In fact, I think it's wise to look back at verse 15. See, then you walk circumspectfully, that means wisely, not as fools, redeeming the time. Days are evil. Do not be unwise. Understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you do that? Well, you're not controlled by wine. You're controlled by the Spirit. Now, this word filled has taken a lot of beating over the years of Christendom. 
There are certain lovely brothers and sisters in Christ who feel that the word filled is synonymous with being baptized in the Spirit. And actually, I would submit to you that that, definition, that is a, a concept that is incongruous. It doesn't fit. If you trace out what baptism is and its description and what filling is, it's, it's two different concepts. And so we, we want to perhaps maybe make that distinction. And that baptism would be that uh, uh, immersion uh, that happens not in a pool of water, but in the person of the Spirit of God where you are fully engulfed like water around your entire spiritual being and placed in something, right? And that's what the Spirit of God does. He fully engulfs the soul, as it were, and now you're placed in a particular position in Jesus Christ. The closest you can be to God, you are through the, Spirit of, through the Spirit's working. But filling has this idea of control, of, of being influenced. So how do you get that? Because the verse says, do not be controlled or drunk with wine. What happens when you're drunk? Has anybody been drunk? You don't have to answer that. Um, I, I've taken care, I've never been drunk. I've taken care of many patients who are drunk. For those of you in the medical field, there's nothing more exhilarating than at 3 a.m. after the bars close to have the barroom fight come in. And the fella comes in, and he's all cut up, and, and, and faces all mashed in, and he's going, I got the best of them, Roger. You know, and you're going, I can see that. I can see that. I think we're going to have to fix you up. You think I'm that bad, do you? Yeah, actually, I do. And so I cat scan his brain, cat scan his face, and, and, now, and now it's like 4 a.m., and he's, you know, he's out. And uh, so he lays on my cot, all right? And as he lays on my cot, I'm starting to fix his forehead. They all, it's all, they're always cut on the forehead, never on the arm, right? Never on the leg. It's always the face. And, and so I'm doing my thing. It takes a lot of time to fix it. And he's so intoxicated that I don't have to use any anesthetic. I know. They don't even move. They just kind of... Hmm, hmm. Do you feel that? Oh. Yeah. Why? Because alcohol is basically like a benzodiazepine, like taking Valium. It knocks you out. You don't remember anything. So we're just doing it, you know. And right then there, I'm working away. It's now 4.30 in the morning, and I hear the faucet go on, except he's peeing all over the floor. Now, he would never do that if he had his faculties and was not dominated by the effects of alcohol. Do you see that? He is controlled, and it removes his normal inhibitions and social moral standards, so he'll just pee right in the wide-open spaces, right? Now, in contrast, he's saying that's not how the Spirit of God works. When he fills you, you're not out of control. You're under control, under his control. Now, there's a guy named Dr. Dwight Pentecost. You've got to be a Christian if your last name is Pentecost, <laughs> right? I can just see that. Son, you need to be saved. You have the last name of Pentecost. You know what that means? You know, I can just hear that. But anyway, and he wasn't my son. But Dr. Pentecost, he's a, he's a, a real solid thinker. And so he's written several books, and one of them is on the Holy Spirit. It's a very, it's a very sound book. It's a, it's a kind of book that's a, it's a, it's like a textbook, so don't read it when you're trying to watch a football game. Read it when you're doing nothing so you can focus. And don't read a lot of it at a time, just a small section because you'll be asleep. However, his section on this verse is outstanding. And what he says is this. The word filling has this idea that like a sail. Now, you hear, you probably say all the time, I remember when, when, uh, um, when I was down before in, in, in the Bahamas, and the, the, you know, there's, there's sail, they're just sailors, right? And I'm standing on a boat, and I'm just like a lump, and, and you know, get out of the way, okay, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I, don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, and, and it's amazing to me. But, but sailors, um, one of the key things about sailing is that you've got to have the wind catch that sail, right? Now, you, you want it to engulf it totally, and that's the idea of filling. The wind is to actually dominate every square inch of that piece of fabric, or the vessel doesn't move. You can't have part of it dangling. You can't have the whole thing dangling unresponsive. You need it to... <laughs> that's filling. That's a very brilliant word picture, isn't it? 
And this is what he's saying. Just like the, the uh, wine or alcohol would dominate you and distort your ability to discern between, what, discern between what is holy and unholy and the glory of God or the non-glory of God, you are filled with the Spirit so that your spiritual senses are astute in making these determinations. That's exactly what's going on. It's filling, it's controlling your minds and thought, not trans-like so that you're you know, lifted off the ground in some Harry Potter movie, but this idea that the Spirit of God has his way with your thinking, with your feelings, with your, with your, your reasoning, your rationale, and your body and mind. Thus you give everything over to the Lord. This is what he's saying. Now, the only way the curse can be reversed is that the Spirit of God fully engulfs the sail of your soul. Do you see the image? And that's why I start here. In fact, when we're doing marriage counseling, that's exactly where I start. And we spent a couple of time, uh, uh, sessions on this. And I asked them, I said, how is the Spirit of God filling you? Where is the Spirit of God not filling you? Because if before we talk about the beauties of, 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 of the marital setting as reflected in chapter 5, uh, verse uh, uh, 23, you're going to have to settle the issue of how you walk with God. If you don't get that walk with God going in your life, I have to tell you, you're not ready to be married. That sounds pretty strong, but that's really the case for every one of us, isn't it? I I think of that in my own life even today. What I just described to you is the philosophy of every day of marriage. Now, let's move on. Obviously, being filled, with, being filled with the Spirit has results. And what, what's the results? Well, there's a certain type of expression. And that expression comes in the form of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But notice, it's not for performance. It's making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's, it expresses itself in thanks. What is, thanks uh, what, what is thanksgiving about? Thanksgiving is, one of the things it is, is it's actually surrendering to a point where gratitude can be offered in return. That's, that's why it's, uh, it's so significant. All we, all, giving thanks always for all things to God in the name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a certain uh, 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 overshadowing uh, um, umbrella to this equation. It's, it's the Lord Jesus' sovereignty and his rule, submitting to one another in, the, in what? The fear of the Lord, that concept that we're missing today. Did you notice it was all in the Old Testament? You read about the fear of the Lord sometime. Just do your Bible word study software. Type in and quotes the fear of the Lord. It's in Proverbs and Psalms primarily. And you'll find that although it's supposed to be a frightening thing, fearing the Lord, trembling, respecting, that whole thing, that God is so sensitive to the one who fears him. I encamp around those who fear. I reveal my secrets to you. I have mercy to you. I said, I'll give me my mercy. Fear of the Lord. It's a special place. That's what he's saying. I like that kind of person. And here in the New Testament, with that imagery in the Jewish mind, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. In other words, it's a safe place. It's a place where you can actually behave in a certain manner that looks like you're going to be trampled, and you will find that that will not be the case. Because we're going to introduce, and this is when he introduces, loving authority and uh, willing submission or loving submission. These two concepts are in the next paragraph. Let's read them. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It always uses that phrase, as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? Our comparison will always be the Savior. And he says, wives, you, you submit. You, you have this willing submission like you would be to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So also is Christ the head of the church. We'll talk about that in a second. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their husband. Quite honestly, that verse and the last verse are the only two about wives in this paragraph. Men, you and I get the beef of the meat of the paragraph. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. Notice that comparison again. Same, similar construction as in the previous uh, verse in 22. It says, and gave himself for her, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water, uh, of water by the rhema, or the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having any sp- a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she should be holy and blameless. Now, I'm going to stop right there. At the very minimum, the two concepts that you could easily see, perhaps in the way I emphasized the text, was there is willing submission and loving authority. Or another way to say it, there is a loving authority and loving surrender. Okay? Now, these words are chosen very carefully. I uh, was doing some research and, and came across uh, Brother Steve Holsheiser's work on headship. He has a little booklet on that. And uh, uh, Steve's a fine gentleman up in Pennsylvania. And, and his ability to communicate these two things were, I thought was quite ingenious. And, and the terms are chosen very carefully. You see, in the economy of God, it's not just about authority. Who wanted authority according to our study last night? Only Satan. Remember, he left out, the, he left out Yahweh, the covenant-keeping title of God. He just used a title of God that had to deal with uh, power and authority. That's what he was tempting Eve to have. That's what he wanted. So it's not just authority. But make no mistake, authority has to be there, right? It's loving authority. Now, and it's not just loving surrender. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not surrender without love. How many of you have a child that will say, I may be sitting down on the in- outside, but I'm standing up on the inside? Oh, you don't have to be a child to do that. I do that, right? In other words... I am physically doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but my heart is just raging. You give me another chance, and I'll let you show, I'll show you what's in my heart. It's just not that surrender. It's hard surrender. That's the loving surrender or willing submission. Both of those concepts you will see come, are, excuse me, are alluded in this text. Husbands, love your wives, all right? You're the head like Christ, so you loving authority. And wives, you like Uh, you would be to the Lord Jesus, you submit. And how do you surrender to the Lord? Because you've got a a backbone that says, well, I'm doing it this time, but not next time. No, it's it's with your whole heart. Both of those concepts are what we call, the Christologic term is headship, right? Headship. Now, we toss that around today, and we say headship, and sometimes it has a negative connotation, but it's not. It's actually very important. Because in the Garden of Eden, when the whole thing unraveled, what was being attacked? Headship. It's like the thumbprint of God. This is how he works and orders life. And Satan attacked it. Why would he do that? Because he challenged headship himself. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. And so when that attack of headship, he brought that and injected it into the human dimension... It is God who has to fix the distortion of headship. And when he fixes it, he weaves it in to all of his new creation. Let's take a break, and I'll come back and redefine that and show you where it's in the scriptures, okay? Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We have to open the word. And Father, our bodies, our souls, our minds, we might be tired. Please, through the Spirit of God, Strengthen your servant and strengthen your people that we might take more of you in. If that could be done today, we would consider it a grand day. In Jesus' name, amen.